Well, there have been some pretty heavy chapters that we've been through so far in our study of 2 Samuel. It was uh, really difficult to be able to see David, a man after God's own heart, begin to spiral down into sin in chapter uh, 11. There we saw him plan, we saw him commit, then we saw him uh, try to cover up his sin by actually committing even more sin. Um, So that was heavy. But it got heavier in chapter 12 when he was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, and and then he began to hear about all of the consequences that both he and his family were going to experience because of that sin in which he committed. Now we come to chapter 13, and we come to the heaviest and darkest passage, not only in the book, but to be honest with you, probably uh, in one of the darkest in all of the Word of God. And yet we've come to it, so we have to do something with it to be faithful to preach the Word of God. And so we come to chapter 13, and and what's interesting about it is it actually begins, here we actually begin to see the devastation of David's sinful choices begin to unfold. I have a feeling that when David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he was told, uh, I will, by, by, by God, I will raise up evil against you out of your household, or and now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. When the prophet said this to him, certainly David thought to himself, well, this is probably going to be bad. This is probably going to be bad, but how bad can it really, really ultimately be? And so it's interesting to me because for you and I, unlike David, our warnings of sin's devastation usually comes before we commit the sin rather than after we commit the sin. How many times have we heard people through our life say, don't do that, or that's going to happen, or don't do this, or this is going to happen, or hey, you don't want to have any part of this other stuff because who knows what will ultimately happen if you do it. So we've had all of these warnings against sin, but like David, much like David, we often fail to consider the full impact of our sin, leaving us sometimes asking the question, well, if I do this, I know it will be bad, but how bad can it really actually be? Well, today in this passage, we get a glimpse of just how bad it can be. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to share this story with you again to make sure we understand it, and I want to warn you that it's a heavy one. In fact, it's so heavy that there might be some, and rightfully so, that would object for me to be able to preach such a passage on Sunday morning in a mixed crowd with different ages and even children sitting here. But I I want to remind you that so sadly that even what we've read within the chapter probably isn't nearly as bad as what is often seen on a night-to-night basis in people's homes on television and even in movies. That's sad. However, at the same time in understanding that, our addressing this chapter is not for you and I to be entertained by it, but rather for you and I to be warned by it for you and I to be warned by the destructive outcome of the sin that you and I might ultimately commit. And so here's what we want to do, or what I want to do. I want to go back and I want to kind of revisit the story again to make sure that we understand it clearly. So just kind of give you a quick rundown. Then I'm going to draw two principles from that story, and we're going to go back into the text a little bit more in depth. And then at the end, I just want to give you some points of application. And then I'm going to preach the second message, and then I'm leaving town with my family on vacation. All right. 
So that's, that's my get out of town. Um, so it comes at a, at a perfect time. So that's my plan. It's survival strategy. So here's what we do. Let me tell you the story. The story actually begins uh, really with, with all the workings of what might really appear to be a wonderful love story. There was a young man who, uh, a young man by the name of Amnon. He is the son. He's a prince, firstborn of King David. And, uh, and he's in love with a sweet, young, beautiful girl by the name of Tamar. And the Bible says that he had loved her so much and that so much so that he was tormented, that he made himself ill. Now, at first, this sounds really grand. Say, well, he's lovesick. This is so wonderful. And it's wonderful until we recognize that this is a half-brother and a half-sister, that he's actually in love with his half-sister. And the, the Torah, the laws, just so that you know, there was no, there was no um, oblivious, hey, I didn't know that this was the wrong thing. Of course, we know because of our conscience, but he also knew because it was explicitly written in the Torah that there should be, and rightly so, that there should be no sexual relationship of any nature between a brother and a sister for obvious reasons. And so this is what began to frustrate this young man. It began to frustrate him. Tamar was this beautiful young lady. She was of the age that she could get married, but yet, no matter what he tried to do, he couldn't get what it was that he ultimately wanted. And before we begin to feel even remotely bad for him, I'm not sure even why we would, or begin to think, well, this is just a sad case of misplaced love, instead of that, we read this, the author says, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. That's our first sign, or second sign at least, that all of this is really not where it ought to be going. When you're in love with somebody, you're not seeking to do something to them, you're seeking to do something for them. And so what we find is that this isn't some story of some misplaced love. Rather, it's a story of unbridled lust. It's a story of a man not loving, loving a woman, but using a woman to try to fulfill his own sexual gratifications and lust. And so here's where he is, and all of this is very bad, of course, but it gets even worse because for everyone, because this man Amnon has a friend. It's actually his cousin and this cousin's uh, name is Jonadab. And Jonadab gives him a plan on how he can fulfill his sinful desires. So he tells him this. He says, bro, all you got to do is very easy. Go and act like you're sick and lay in bed. Let everybody know how bad you feel. You don't have any strength. Eventually, dad's going to come and check on you. Well, dad, when King Dad comes and he checks on you and he says, how you doing? Fine. Well, not, not so well. And he goes, is there anything I can do for you before I leave? Yes. Send Tamar to me. She makes these wonderful little splendid heart-shaped cakes that have all these herbs in them. And, and that will make me feel better if you just, food makes me feel better too. So I understand that. Just send these to me. And, and by the way, I'm so weak. Make sure that she feeds it to me with her own hands. So David, not recognizing any of this as being strange or weird. He says, okay, he grants it. He sends for Tamar. Tamar being an obedient young lady to her parents, honoring them, obeys them. I throw that in just in case my kids are hearing. It honors God to honor your parents. And so, so, so she, she goes and she begins to bake and begins to knead this stuff together, bakes it, and then gets it all ready. And then, and then Amnon sends all of the servants out except for Tamar. And he says, he calls for Tamar into his chambers, being his bedroom. And when she gets in there, instead of grabbing for uh, these muffins, she he grabs for her and grabs her. And, uh, and he holds her and he says, you come and you lay with me. You understand what that means? And she, she absolutely denounces. She absolutely tells him, no, 
And this is not a side note, but it's not the port for the purpose of the passage. But let me tell you this, just in case we don't understand. No, gentlemen, means no. Whether that's outside of marriage or whether it's in marriage. Are, are we clear of that? Are we clear of that? All right? Men, this is your time to shine. All right? This is... No, it's not good. And I'll go one step further. We understand that we have a big movement, the Me Too movement. And, and there are some things about it that I absolutely agree with. No means no. There are other things about it that I think are politically driven. And, and, and though I don't necessarily agree, but just because I disagree with this, I do agree with this. No man should ever force a woman in a physical position to do something that she doesn't want to do. But I'll go one step further than that. Because the Bible doesn't even sit there and say, hey, guess what? You shouldn't do anything unless they consent. The Bible says, man, you shouldn't be touching a woman even if she does consent. The Bible says very clearly, and this has been the big question about young people when I was a youth pastor, how far is too far? Do you remember that question? Do you remember that? Well, let me tell you how far too far is. The Bible says that there are two ways in which you relate to a woman, or three, a mother, a wife, and a sister in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no in-between. So when you get engaged or you have a girlfriend, it does not give you a right in any way, shape, or form to take any sexual pleasure from that woman who is not your wife. She is a sister in Christ until you big boy it up and make a covenant commitment till death do you part before you begin to have any kind of relationship with her. Does that make sense? Well, I know you're very excited about that. I can tell. And so I'm just, I want to make sure that it's very clear that this is the, what the Word of God says. And so this is what he does. The Bible says that she tells him very strictly no, but he doesn't stop. The Bible says being stronger than she, he violated her and he lay with her. It's a horrible story. Terrible story. What is it that we're supposed to understand? The two things that come to mind, first of all, are this. It talks to me or shows to me and tells me about sin's destruction about sin's destruction. You know, the Bible says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. And the Bible also tells us that the main weapon in which he chooses to be able to use is temptation. All the way back from Adam and Eve, what do we see him doing? We see Adam and Eve living in a perfect world with a perfect God, walking in the cool of the day, having perfect fellowship with him. And then, guess what? They're tempted. They fall to that temptation. And what does it do? It destroys it destroys their relationship with God. It destroys their relationship with each other. It destroys their own lives. Paradise is lost. But remember something. Remember how, how, how far spread that destruction is. It doesn't just remain with them. It spreads to every man, woman, and child who would be born after them. The whole world is now fallen. It's why we have mosquitoes. It's why we have briars. It's, it's why we have cats. It's because of the fall. It's because of all of these things. It, it is, it's destructive, and it's the destructive nature of what sin ultimately does. In, in fact, here, here, here's what we, what we see here really in, is a lot of people sit back and they'll say something to this effect. Well, you know what? I can sin and do whatever I want as long as it doesn't bother anybody else. You cannot sin in a vacuum. 
Any sin that you commit is going to impact negatively the people around you. There has never been a child who has rebelled against God that did not hurt the, the heart of that parent. There has never been a parent who has rebelled that that child has not ultimately been hurt. Your sin, my sin, destroys not only ourselves but those around us. We see this here in the text, the destruction of Amnon himself. This is something that's not immediately evident within the text, but it would have been for those who were originally reading the text themselves. We, we, the, the author writes in such a way that he draws these striking similarities to an Old Testament figure by the name of Shechem. And, and if we go back to Genesis chapter 34, there we see word for word, action for action, they're exactly the same. In fact, they even use the same Hebrew words. There, the author tells us that, that, that this man, Shechem, did the same things that Amnon did here. He was, he was guilty of rape. He was guilty of raping a young lady who was the daughter of an Israeli king. And at the end of that, he dies. And the way that the author is writing this, he's connecting the two and letting us know he did this. He was just like, Shechem. He, he acted like a Canaanite, and guess what? He too is going to be destroyed just like the Canaanite. This is what sin does. But the sin and the destruction is not just his. He's not the only one who suffers from his sin. There's an innocent party who is in the wake of all of this, and her name is Tamar. And, and here is a young, beautiful lady. The Bible says that she had a servant's heart. The Bible says that she was submissive to her authority. She was one of moral purity. And yet the Bible says that she was sinned against. She was trapped in a diabolical plan. She was, she, she was ignored repeatedly. She was forcibly overpowered, and she was raped. All of this is terrible stuff, but it even gets worse, if you can even imagine. It gets worse, and here's how it plays out. The Bible says in verse 15, follow along if you will, it says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred was greater than the love in which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong is sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. It was greater than the rape. It was greater than you're forcing me. How can, that, how can anything be greater? To understand it, we'd have to understand the biblical context. We'd have to understand that during that day, clearly the Bible uh, made it illegal for somebody, for a man, to be able to take the vir virginity of a woman that was not his spouse. And if he did, he would ultimately have to marry her, and he would also have to pay a financial fine, a financial penalty toward her. You read about that in Exodus chapter 22. But Amnon refused to marry her. Instead, he, he, he calls his personal servant, note this, calls his personal servant in verse 17 and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. The crazy part about the Hebrew is, is that we find out that the word woman is actually supplied by the translators here in, in, in the ESV, but in the original language, there is no her. There is no woman supplied. It's supplied by the writer. Instead, what he says is, he doesn't even say, send her out. He says, Put this out. Put this out. Like, like trash that's supposed to be taken out. It's completely demeaning to any part of humanity that she is. Just take her out, he says. He takes her out like a piece of trash. In verse 18, it says, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king's dress. The king's responsibility, any father's responsibility to their sons and daughters is to try to do all they can to maintain their purity, their sexual purity until they get married. We can all agree with that, right? Something that we, right? 
who am I talking to this morning? This is, this is, this is what God, to do everything we can to be able to do that. And one of the ways that his father did it was, um, is instead of giving them a promise ring, you probably heard of that, he would give them this very ornate, lavish dress that they would wear. And people would look at them, and it was a way of honoring them and keeping themselves pure. The tragedy here is she's, very, she's wearing this purity dress when she's taken advantage of by this man. And when she leaves, she is so broken, she throws ashes on herself, and she begins to tear up the dress. In those days, again, this would have crushed every dream that she had. Just like every girl looking and planning and hoping for a marriage one day and thinking about how it was going to be. And during that particular day, uh, a king's daughter would, would marry into another family to be able to strengthen the bombs and the family relations and also to be able to str uh, uh, strengthen his own reign as king. And so she might have the chance of really marrying an impressive young man one day. But now because of this, she would have been viewed as damaged goods. She would not have the family that she had desired. She would not have the marriage that she wanted. She would not be able to have the children that she did. And so here, Absalom, who was her brother, has pity on her, and he tries to encourage her by telling, now hold, hold your peace, my sister. First of all, all of this is horrible, horrible advice. A woman should never hold her peace if she's being taken advantage of in this way. Should never hold her peace. Should never, should never believe that it is her fault that these things have ultimately happened. I used to sit there all the time and hear people say, well, she shouldn't dress like that if she doesn't want to be treated that way. You know what? She shouldn't dress that way, but no way that she dresses gives anybody the right to be able to touch or take advantage of that young lady in any way, shape, or form. And so here he, he tells her, and it's even worse, he says, he is your brother. He says, do not take this to heart. Yeah, not going to take this to heart. How can she not take this to heart? So Tamar lived, and here's the key verse here, and it goes back to this destruction. So Tamar lived a desolate woman, as a desolate woman, in her brother's Absalom's house. The word desolate there literally means to be laid waste, to lay waste. And this is the outcome of this man's sin. Number two, sin's destruction. Number two, sin's deafness, sin's deafness. I think there are several misunderstandings that we have when it comes to sin. I think one of the biggest is that we, we think that sin is an involuntary response to temptation. In other words, the temptation comes and we just sin. It's like we, can, we can't do anything about it. It just happens so quickly. We didn't see it coming. What happened? Oh, I just, I just, I just ha it just happened. But the truth of the matter is, is both our experience and the Word of God teaches us that that's not how it happens. That there is some gracious time between the temptation and actually the falling to that temptation that God gives us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul wrote, No temptation has overtaken you that is, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's the grace of God. He provides a way of escape, which means there must be time between the time that you begin to be tempted and the time that you fall. He's providing a way of you to be able to escape it. And we see that very thing happen here. We find in the text of Scripture that here he has many opportunities to be able to flee his sin. Let me give you two of them. Number one, his first opportunity to flee temptation was when he was given bad advice 
from a bad guy and he liked it. He was given advice from a, a bad guy, bad advice from a bad guy, and he ended up liking it. If you go back and you read about Jonadab, his cousin, his friend, his close compatriot, we find out that he was a very crafty man. And the word crafty there can be translated as shrewd and wise. But this is not godly wisdom. Instead, this is a worldly, unspiritual, and devilish wisdom. Apparently, this guy had a reputation of cutting corners. He can get anybody out of a pickle. If you, he's the guy that you want to see. When you know that you speed, but you don't want to pay the ticket, just go to Jonadab. He'll get you out of that ticket. He knows how to be able to get you out of trouble. And so this is what Dale Ralph Davis says. He says, he knows all the angles, knowing, knowing how to work all the angles, and knows how to make everything succeed, even your plans of raping your cousin. He knows how to ultimately do it. And so what am I... What, 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 I'll get to it in just a minute. But that's the first way out. The second way out is this. His second opportunity to flee temptation came when he received sound spiritual and moral rational advice from Tamar. There are a bunch of different characters that are going to be mentioned throughout the chapter, uh, chapter 13. However, she's the only one that seems to have any clue of godliness at all, any sense to be doing the right thing. Everything about her seems to be righteous in the way that she is described. And when Amnon began to make his advances, she said very boldly, stop. She said, verse 12, no, my brother, do not violate me. This should have been his second warning. When she used the words, words brother, and said, don't violate me, your sister, that was a spiritual warning. The word of God was full with warnings against this. She was trying to tell him, spiritually, this is not right. Biblically, this is not right. This is sin against God. Stop doing what you're doing. And then she gives him another warning, not only spiritually, but morally. She says, for such a thing is not done in Israel. She says, do not do this outrageous thing. For, for, uh, as for me, she goes, where would, I, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Here he says, he says, this kind of action isn't done anywhere in Israel, including the pagans. Even the pagans don't do what it is that you're doing. He says, morally, this is so corrupt. Even the worst of the worst won't do what it is that you say that you're now ultimately going to do. It's a moral warning. And then she begins to work with him uh, with, in a logical way, tries to warn him logically. She says, now therefore, she goes, not only, hey, not only is there no way for me to live this down, but there's no way for you to live this down. You're going to have a horrible reputation forever. But then he says, now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. What she's trying to say is, hey, there might be a right way to go about what it is that you want, but what is God-given must also be God-governed. You can't take shortcuts. You've got to do what God wants. Now, it's probably unlikely that she, he would allow, David would allow him to be able to marry at this particular point. We understand that. Probably not going to allow all of this to happen. However, she's desperate in that moment. She's doing everything she can to be able to warn him spiritually, morally, uh, logically, to be able to get him to be able to wake up. And how does he respond? But he would not listen to her. And again, in verse 16, but he would not listen to her. What do we do with this? See, here's, here's the thing is, I had to wrestle with this for the last two weeks. You are wrestling with it on Sunday morning, and I pray that you will wrestle with it for the next two weeks to come. But what do we do with all this? Let me, let me say, first of all, I do not believe that this passage 
is for those who are here, I know this audience and I know it well, we have hypersensitive sin people. And what I mean by that is I will preach a message from 1 John, which says, here are the evidences that you know that you are born again. And in my mind, I'm like, there are some people here that I don't think that know God. They, just, they don't even profess faith. They, they, they need to hear this. And some of you who know God and evidence of God, and you're, 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 you're charging hell with a water pistol, and your life has been radically changed through Jesus Christ, you're the very first ones that would come out and go, I'm doubting my salvation. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Because you're so hyperly sensitive to sin, which is not all a bad thing. But here's what this text is not saying. It is not saying that those who have sinned in the past, who have done destructive things and, and destroyed, brought destruction not only to themselves and devastation to themselves, but to other people, but have sought the forgiveness of God, have repented of their sin. That means they've turned from that action. They've sought to for, seek forgiveness for those that they have wronged, and they've tried to reconcile that relationship to the best they do. This passage is not sitting there to you and saying, you need to feel guilty for the rest of your life and be in bondage to what you did in the past. You hear that? I, I want to make sure that all of you hear that. That's not the purpose of this passage at all. If you have done what it is that I've said, God has forgiven you. Now, there's always going to be some, some grief that we have because of what we've done. Never should there be a time when somebody brings up if we've done something that's devastated their life and when they bring it up and say, hey man, when are you just going to let it go? That's not a demonstration of a contrite and broken heart. But we are able to live because we know that God has restored us even though we struggle with what we did. Would you say amen? And so that's not what God is trying to do here. It's not the purpose. So what does it do? Let me give you just a few things. I say a few things, I mean five. Um, very quickly, that are just going to bring some quick application, and then we'll be done, and I'll go on vacation. All right, number one, it serves as a reminder of what needs to be done, of what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is you, there are some who have harmed other people and are in sin, and they've never truly confessed that to God. And they've never truly repented of it. And they've certainly, even if they have, they haven't gone to the people that they've hurt. And they need to go to those that they hurt. The scriptures tell us, he says, look, if you remember, if you're, if you're, going, you're, offer, you're offering up your offering to God, and you remember that somebody has, has something against you, what do you do? Leave it at the altar. Go to them. Begin to seek the forgiveness. Work this ultimate thing out. What it's saying is, look, we may be forgiven of our sin, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't go to those that we are hurt and be able to seek forgiveness for them. Let them know, I blew it. I did what was wrong. I need you to be able to forgive me for what I did. And maybe the healing, can, true healing can begin not only in their heart, but our heart as well. Second, it serves as a warning to us who are contemplating sin. See, this isn't for the people who have already done it. This is for the people who are contemplating it right now. Remember that gap that we said between the temptation and the actual act of sin? There are some folks right now that their minds have been thinking about what it is that they want to do. And it's not about God, and it's not honoring to God, but they just kind of sit back, and they're thinking about it, and they're thinking about it, and it's growing, and they're getting closer. And the reason that you know that they're getting closer is because they're already making small little sinful steps. They're telling lies. They're, they're misleading people. They're doing stuff in the dark that nobody knows about. And what it's showing is that they're working their way up to this particular destructive sin. And so what we have to understand in this is, is that some are contemplating sin, and this is a warning to be able to sit there and go, guys, it's not going to end well. It's not going to end 
well. Do you guys remember? Don't admit it. There was a movie. I'll just explain it to you. You don't have to admit it because then you put yourself in the same position I am. There was this movie called Dumb and Dumber. And in Dumb and Dumber, this guy wants to date this girl. And at the end, he says, so is there a chance? She says, yeah. Like, she says, like one in a million, there's a chance for you. And then he says, so you're saying there's a chance, right? <laughs> Somehow our sinful minds believe that there is some chance that you and I can sin and win. It has not worked from the beginning of creation that any man, woman, and ch- children, child has ever sinned and ended up better off for that sin. But yet you and I still sit back and we think, maybe there's a chance. And the scriptures are telling us, my friend, that there is absolutely no chance at all if you're contemplating it. Let me give you another one. It serves as a call to listen. To listen. To listen to godly wisdom for those who are around us. Let me, let me tell you what you, we naturally do. And this is what I hear people naturally do. They end up seeking, I end up seeking wisdom for those that I think are going to answer my question the way that I want them to be able to answer. Have you ever done that? As a pastor, I've had many times th- this thing. People go, well, brother, I got something to ask you, but I really don't want to ask you because I think I know what you're going to say. Then I've had other times where I, I've actually, they've actually asked me, I've actually shared it, and they go, well, yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. All right? And you're like, this is such an edifying profession. I, I'm so glad that I'm in it. And, um, and, and so you just kind of share with people these things. And, and, and here's, let me give you a little bit of advice. When you are looking to do something wrong, the sin within you will seek out those who are experts in doing what is wrong. You will go to people who do not know God and do not walk with God and don't have any fellowship with Him, who have a reputation of defying Him and are experts at it, just like Jonadab here. And if you come and you ask them their opinion and it sounds good, it sounds right, that's your warning right there that guess what? This is not the direction that I'm supposed to be going. I'm way off from where I ultimately need to be. There's, there's a warning. It serves as a warning for us, but it also calls us to be able to listen. There are people in your life, this morning, this preacher that God has sent to you, who loves you with all of his heart, is calling you not to go down the path that you are going. There's a passage of Scripture that has been delivered here today that all of us, even in the reading of it, you could hear a needle drop because it's so perverse, it's so wrong, it's so destructive, and yet at the same time, what we're saying is this. We're coming back and we're just simply saying to you, guys, it's a warning. Don't do it. Don't go down that path. Listen to God's wisdom. Number four, it serves as a reminder of the futility of sin. Do you remember uh, back when we read those words? It says, Then Amnon hated her with, with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Again, this goes back to that old idea. It's, it's, it's futile to think that if I can just get the sinful thing that I want, that it's going to ultimately make me happy. It leaves us like this. We love it. We think we want it. We find out that it's really not love at all. It's the lust of the heart. We get it, and what do we do? We hate what it is that we got it because we hate what it did to us. And number five, it serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness. It serves as a reminder of God's faithfulness. Now, let me say something. 
I have looked and probed and done everything I can in this passage to find hope. You know, I'm always trying to look for the hope, always trying to look for the gospel, always trying to look, because I know if I don't find some hope, then you don't have any hope. And if I leave on vacation, I may get a letter that says, make it longer, much longer, don't come back, you're done, there's no hope with you, right? So I understand all of that. But the bottom line is, is this, it speaks of God's faithfulness. Now just track with me for a minute. What did God say was going to happen? He said, the sword will not depart from your house. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He was going to judge his family, and they were going to bear the consequences. God is always true in that. He is faithful to judge. He is faithful to discipline those that he loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us he, he, he disciplines us because he loves us. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't discipline us. So we know that that is always going to happen. But it tells us something about his faithfulness. That is, faith, that, is that he, take one more step, he is faithful to do what he says he will do. Would you agree with that? Which means he is also faithful to forgive. He's also faithful to forgive. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, that guy is wrong. And the truth is, if you know what I did, I feel so heavy about this because my sins are far deeper, far greater than you can ever imagine. And what I'm telling you, if God is faithful to do what he says he will do, he says if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the hope. He is a faithful God, yes, to judge sin, but he is a faithful God to forgive and to restore. It's the same faithful God. You know, there might be some who are even here, and the reason I even understand this, that maybe you're sitting back and maybe you were the one who did the sinning, but maybe you were the one who were sinned against. I want to let you, do you think for a moment that God has forgotten about Tamar? Do you think at all that God does not love Tamar and care for Tamar and think of Tamar? Of course he does, and he thinks of you, and he hasn't forgotten you. And your life does not have to be defined by what you did, but rather it should be defined what Christ did for you on the cross. That years ago, he saw you, and he loved you, and he cared for you, and he saw the worth in you, and guess what he ended up doing? He loved you so much. What gives us worth is the fact that he loves us, by the way. Apart from him, I don't know what worth there is, but he sees something is. He loves us. He's chosen to love us, and he died on the cross to do what? To forgive us of our sins and to be able to cleanse us, and to be able to change us. We're not defined by what people have done for us. We're defined what Christ did for us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we thank you, we praise you. Lord, tough day, heavy day. But God, we are to see and view sin in such heaviness. We are to see it as heavy. We are to see it as wicked. That's the point of the text. They're, they're, they're giving us such great detail so that we're frightened by it, that we're, we're angered by it, that we're broken over it, so that when we truly are, then we see your grace is infinitely great, that it reaches down, forgives us, restores us. God, that's your great grace and great mercy and great love. God, for those who are here that need to confess sin, let them confess. God, for some who need to go to others and say, bro, I've wronged you, or sister, I've wronged you. God, give them ears to hear and a will to work and to do those things. God, for those who need to be healed in a healing heart, God, help them to understand the way that they're able to get through this is because they understand your great love for them. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?
I'm going to be down here. I would love to pray with you, talk with you. The altar's open if you want to be able to come. But, but, but please, if God's working, please give us an opportunity to pray with you or to talk with you or to follow up whatever it is that God's doing inside of your heart. And that's what this is about this morning. All right, let's respond.